Bismillahirrahmanirrahim ve sallallahu ala seyyidina Muhammedin ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem. Peace and love everybody. I'm Brother Ali. This is the Traveler's Podcast. Thank you for being here. I'm grateful to you and for you because you're the reason that this podcast actually has life. And I'm also grateful to and for this guest that we have this week. I think most people probably know Eli for being an underground hip-hop artist. And... He's part of a juggernaut from the West Coast in this culture known as Living Legends. If you are familiar with underground independent hip-hop music, particularly from you know, the early 2000s, the late 90s, up until today, then you're well aware of the impact and the importance of Living Legends. But if you're not, I mean, I wouldn't even know how to begin describing them, other than the fact that it's just a miracle that this group of artists from L.A., which is, you know, Eli and Merce and Scarab, uh, you know, so many of these artists from L.A. that joined forces with the artists from the Bay Area in Northern California. And they just formed this extremely organic and dynamic group of people that it's just a miracle that the fact that each of them individually exists and then also the fact that they were able to come together in the way that they did and just form this powerhouse of truly organic, I mean, as organic as DIY and independent as it gets. These are people that recorded music together in their homes, in their basements. They had a a warehouse that they converted into a living space together. Uh, They went on tour in an RV with nobody's permission and with no backing and with no industry involvement whatsoever. And the fact that they've stayed together for all of these years is really incredible. You just got these incre- these amazing artists like Merce, who uh, we did two episodes with Merce a couple months ago, and uh, artists like Eli and like The Grouch and like Lucky I Am and Scarab and Aesop the Black Wolf, or now they call it the Black Aesop, because we also, there's Aesop Rock from New York, who is not black, the Black Aesop, you know what I'm saying? Arata from Japan, like this amazing group of individuals and of artists and what they've been able to do, their influence, their mark on the culture, the art form, the business practices has just been really incredible. And so I'm happy to be able to have more and more members of Living Legends on the podcast. Uh, Eli is best known for his music, but I mean, you know, he's also a visual artist. Uh, he is also somebody that's been in the NFT space. He also is an extremely amazing and incredible entrepreneur. Uh, he's somebody who's made music with his mom. Shout out to Mama Joe, you know. And but to me, Eli is—he's one of the artists in this space that has poured so much of his life and his heart, and his wisdom, and his travel journals, and his thoughts and meditations and prayers, and just his innermost feelings into his music. Uh, he's somebody that came out his first project that I was aware of that he got on my radar in the late 90s. He did a project in 1996 when we were all fresh out of high school and, you know, struggled with substance abuse and did so really publicly and then also got clean uh, starting in, in 2005, I think. But then put out he put a project out in 2010 called Grey Crow, which to me is a really foundational project, not only for his career, but for the culture and for underground independent hip hop. I'm really blessed that I'm on that album. You know, he sent me a song around that time and asked me if I would be on it. And 
I was like, yeah, it's a dope song. He's a dope guy. I had no idea the project that I was actually becoming a, a part of. And so I'm really grateful to be on that album because it it really is just such a monumental one. And he opened up and shared that part of his journey, just like he has his entire life. So I'm really grateful for that. And then Eli and I actually, Eli and I actually, Eli and I actually went on a tour with the Grouch. The Grouch did these end of the year Christmas tours called How the Grouch Stole Christmas with just a, uh, an amazing cast of artists. I mean, Mr. Fab did it one year. Uh, Evidence did it one year. Uh, Zion I did it. We've just had such an incredible, you know, he's had such an incredible run. He's done it with Merce. He had one with the whole Living Legends crew. Really, really dope. Really something that we would all look forward to doing and to just knowing exists, you know. Uh, there was one that he did with Merce, uh, the the project with Grouch and Merce called These Hands. And I think These Hands, I think they have another album coming soon, which is all super dope. It's just really beautiful stuff. But I met Eli when I had just come back from Hajj. I just made my first pilgrimage to Mecca. This is now 12 years ago. And Eli was uh, releasing and, and doing the circuit for his new album that he had just put out, which is the Grey Crow album, really talking about his reflections and meditations on being clean and sober and going through recovery and going through therapy and the, the awakening. So we kind of had this like mutual awakening period and then got to do it on the road together. So he's just somebody I really value, not only for who he is as an artist, but who he is as a human being. And whenever I talk to friends that I really know, especially these people that are just really nuanced, dynamic people that can talk so much on their own and have so much to share and so much to offer, I'm never sure how these conversations are going to go. I prepare and I have all these questions and I think about, like, I come into them thinking, okay, is this going to be like a retrospective on this person's life? Or are we going to start about, start with them growing up and how far back they know in their family? You know, with Merce, we were able to do something like that. And then I talk to people like Amir Suleiman that I know really well, and we come in and it just doesn't feel right. It would feel forced and corny for me to kind of uh, impose this linear conversation with somebody that I know so well. And so we got on with Eli and we just talked until he had to to run uh, and get back on, on daddy duty. Eli is somebody who uh, got married kind of like later in life and, and had kids later in life. In the underground hip hop space, and this was my artist friends in general, there are some of them that have, some of us that have kids really young. So you know, me and Slug and Talib Kweli and a number of us had kids really young. And then there are some that waited until later in life. And, um, you know, some of us had children really young and then also had children later in life. And actually me and Slug are both in that camp. And then there are some of us like Immortal Technique that's just like, what's going on, man? Is this going to happen? What's, what's, what's cracking? Uh, but Eli is somebody that did that later in life. So feel really grateful and blessed to be able to have this time with Eli. I do think that we need to have more conversations. And I think that he and I could actually probably circle back more than once a year and just kind of talk through stuff. So this is our conversation with Eli. We're brought to you as always by Zakat Foundation and by BetterHelp Online Therapy Platform. Really grateful that you're here. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Travelers Podcast. So what's good? What's happening with you, brother? How are you? Boy, I am in the midst of fatherhood as mm. 
a new dad though. Mm. Like, I mean, she's, she's going to be two in December, but for me, um, I'm still in those stages where, uh, it's a lot, I feel, uh, different than I've ever felt about, um, I guess what's important, what goes up to the top of the list and what gets dropped down, so to speak, yeah. priorities. Um, so it's been a balancing act trying to find uh, where the happy medium is because obviously your family, it becomes number one. And honestly, everybody else doesn't matter as much as my wife, and my daughter, but also how do I continue to bring money in to support everybody? And in the midst of all that, she was, she was a quarantine baby. So she comes and then, you know, all the, uh, non-activity related to COVID and how all of us were just kind of doing nothing. And uh, it, it kind of pushed me into creating from home and like being able to make money from home, which I was doing pretty well, man. I was pretty, uh, pretty excited by the idea of actually not having to leave home to make money. Although I love being on stage in the moment, doing the act of performing, connecting, energy exchange, all of that. But everything that comes with it, dude, I could easily retire from. Like, no doubt. And some yeah. people, some some fellow musicians I bring that up to are like, not me, I love it all the way. I'm like, hey, I mean, I love the, the performing, but everything else, dude, if I can make money from home, I just won't do that. I'll do shows selectively, maybe closer to me, just to get out there and do it and have and have fun with people. But but if I can um, create from home and do my visual art, produce, and and eventually, hopefully, score, film, and do it all from, from the house, dude. I mean, what's better than that? You know, for me, like, so much of the performance piece is, like, I, that's how I've always connected. So, like, right. I feel like for all of us that do what we do, this is especially, it's really on blast with artists because artists live so much out loud, but really everybody, the people, human beings just have different motivations based on our personality types and how we're constructed. And it's really important to know what those things are. But so some people are driven by the desire to just be in control or for power or for notoriety or, you know, that they want to express something or they're just so driven. For me, it's connection. And I think me and you have that in common. But yeah. what I have learned by observing you is that, like, I've always had to be in a room with the people to feel connected. Like, if I'm not in a room performing with people, I don't feel connected to my audience. I miss them. I, I feel like I'm on my own on a, in the middle of the ocean or something. And one of the things that you seem to have really mastered, especially in the pandemic, was a way to really create and curate and also to maintain a sense of community with the people that follow you, not only so that they can support you and keep you going, but I mean, right. just even from observing you, it feels like your community of supporters and listeners are still really active and like you're still really connected with them. Man. That's that's just cool to hear coming from you or from any of my peers to say that because it makes me feel like I'm not wasting my time, so to speak. But you're right. I mean, finding a way to connect with people has been the story of my career in a sense of 
keeping it going this long. I just feel when the young people, you know, when young people come to me or you and they say, they say, Ali or Eli, what, what, what would you advice would you give to an artist who's just coming up trying to make their way, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, I'm always tell them to be as uniquely strange and beautiful as you are. Do don't feel like you need to follow any pathway or this and that. But the most, the thing that I put across the most is to be your genuine self in your music and express the most personal of personal feelings and be vulnerable. There it is. I'm looking for the word. I'm like scatting around. Just be vulnerable with your music, dude. That is how you create lifelong connection that can survive stuff like a pandemic when we're not out there and we're not able to be physically in front of each other, you know, putting hands on shoulders and like looking you in the face and giving hugs. Cause that's, I know you and I are like that in the same way. Like I hug my, I hug everybody. Man. It's just like, I enjoy that part of it. So like you, I do miss that, but there, if you, if you always create that way, if you're that type of creator, then there's always going to be people that are, going people that want to support you period and so that's what i would tell i tell young people that come to me i'm like be as vulnerable as possible i've always loved you and i've always loved your music but two of your projects like really stick out to me and the first one is your first your first album the one that i heard was as they passed that was the first time that i really heard it and when i listened to that record like you already were so fully formed as an artist you know what I mean? Like a lot of the a lot of those early legends things, and when I go back to even listen to early atmosphere, like all of our friends, you go back and listen to their like cassette recordings or or like four-track recordings, you hear the spark of what's there, but it usually took a long time for people to fully develop. But I feel like, you know, of course you made big spiritual and personal strides in your life. And I feel like that really showed up on Grey Crow. That started really showing up around the Great Crow time. But man, on As They Pass, like as an artist, as an MC, and the main thing that sticks out to me is like your flow was already intact. You already were in the pocket. You already understood how to ride the beat. But your confidence and your presence was already like fully formed. Like that young, that early, and on that first, that first project. What dude, that's crazy. I mean, <clears throat> all I could do is is imagine myself at that time recording that album, and to think that you hear you hear a confident kid back then who had dreads over my face, a hood over the dreads, my sleeves pulled over my hand, like trying to invert myself inwards because I was so shy and so not confident, except when I did that, except. Right. So you see me on stage, I would be back by the DJ booth, kind of bobbing my head, hiding. And then when it's my turn, I get up, bah, 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 and I go back into the hole. And 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 also like back then I started realizing that, oh, if I drink this alcohol, I won't feel as nervous. I won't feel as self-conscious. So that was the beginning of that journey as well. But the it, it, it's amazing to think that, yeah, dude, because before as they pass that wasn't the first thing i ever did like merce mm. garib and i were making 3mg stuff at 15 and before that i was in junior high with scarab who i rapped in front of for the first time i rapped in front of scarab out loud as the first person ever it was on a school bus we were in the seventh grade 
And to hear someone react to me, not just me doing it in my room, but somebody say, whoa, dude, we should have a group. And immediately is like, we should be a group. And I'm like, really? Dope. And then everybody that I was rapping out loud to was like, just like, whoa. And then so I started thinking, maybe I can, I'm actually, but all that comes from Poor Righteous Teachers. All that comes from Wise Intelligent and, uh, and, and all the rappers that I fell in love with that were a little off from center as mm. far as everybody else during that time. And um, so by the time I got to As They Pass, I did a whole album with Log Cabin. Like Merce Scarab and I were a part, a part, already a part of a big conglomerate. Like, then when that broke apart, Merce left, and and then I ended up leaving, going up to the bay. It's such a weird story, Ali, because it was never planned to meet up with Merce or Grouch or anybody again. I just went to the bay with my cousin because she lived in Berkeley, and my mom kicked me out, and it was time to go. And I'm like, let's go. And somehow I meet Grouch separately from all of that and end up at Grouch's basement and and. You know, he's teaching me how to use the ASR-10. He has the four track. His basement is where I made every single beat on As They Pass and recorded all of it while he was doing his pizza delivery that he would do during the day. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a job. I was a little bum. I was a little cat coming at your door, scratching. Yeah, man, come on, let me, let me in. I'll mm-hmm. eat your leftovers. I'll sleep under the couch. I don't care, man. Just let me smoke your leftover beaties and, and I'll just make beats while you're not here. And... Mm-hmm. Because Grouch allowed me to do that, which I knew bothered him. He was at work like this little fucker is at my house making beats when I want to be making beats, recording a full album while the equipment wasn't being used. And those were all my first beats on the ASR-10. Like, he taught me how to use it. And it was just nothing mattered. Food didn't matter. Nothing mattered. I was just so happy being in that funky basement making those um, songs. Next thing you know... Who comes walking down the stairs? Merce. I'm like, what? I hadn't seen him in two years. We're like, and y'all went to high school together, right? We went to high school together. We went through a lot of stuff pre even coming to the Bay uh, um, as friends. And next thing you know, there we're back in the same. We're back together again with and met these guys at different times. It was just weird. It was very strange. And um, yeah, and that was that was the beginning. But to hear you say that. It makes me wonder because some people, you know, you get those people that say every new release, there's at least one person. Oh, boo, rap like you used to rap. I'm like, it's funny to me now. It used to really get on my nerves. But, right. you know, over the last 10 years, I'm like, you know, more <laughs> love you, bro. I'm love that you love how I used to rap. But even if I tried to write the way I wrote and rap the way, there's no possible way. I was a different person, literally a different person. Yeah, I couldn't do it if I tried. Well, spiritually and psychologically, you definitely are. I mean, when you talk about like people that are vulnerable in their music, you get to really grow with them as human beings. And I feel like you're one of the people, and it's 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 such an amazing space, it's particularly in underground hip hop, that like we're rewarded for that. Like it took Jay Z a long time to really be like, "Yo, mo, my dad left. I was actually just hurt and scared, and I didn't have the tools. I didn't know. I didn't have. I didn't know emotionally what to do with all this pain I had. It took him a long time to really be able to get there, because he's not being rewarded for that. You know, we're rewarded from that almost from the very beginning, and so, you know, our freedom to be able to be open and things. Like I feel like even in that space, your personal growth." it really stands out and your spiritual growth and everything you've been through. But I, I mean, just in terms of 
being fully, when I listen to my demo tape, so when I listen to like Rites of Passage, which is my demo tape, and then I listen to As They Pass, and yours is four years before mine, like, man, it's so, um, you're just so fully formed and like you're, you're so comfortable on the beat. You feel so comfortable in your voice. It's, it's really amazing, man. That's it's just so cool to hear you say that, man. It's like a sense of pride for that kid back then because I'm I'm just throwing him his flowers, you know, because yeah. because it all comes from a sense of love, loving something so much and feeling so comfortable while creating that mm-hmm. I was not in my day to day life. I, like right. I said, I was so you know had a confidence issue and still. At this age, I'm still figuring out the whys and hows and what's of all of that. And having a having a daughter now just invokes and triggers all that stuff again. So I'm like, there's no escaping. You're gonna learn why, why I, I feel the way I feel about myself and why I have these messages on repeat that no longer apply to me at mm-hmm. all, that were just lies from the beginning anyway. And mm-hmm. you know, that's there's never a, a you know we're learning to the end. I mean, that's just, it is what it is. And being in a relationship, being with the woman that I'm with, you know, she's my mirror. We're all mirrors for each other when we're married or in a relationship. And, and it's almost like um, an accelerant. If you're really doing the work and being aware and paying attention, absolutely. Being in a relationship is an accelerant to. Absolutely. It's, it's a, it's like a spiritual and emotional, uh, yeah, like a, like a boot camp. Boot camp. There you go. Like constantly, like it, like it's, it's, it's training. It's at, at all times. Right. And it's funny because when I think of as they pass, I think of me saying, uh, basically my message was what I was dealing with right then. I've always been that kind of writer. A lot of the songs were I'm broke. I don't want to work. I don't want to do your job. I want to do this. Um, uh, I'm just trying to get some weed and smoke a cigarette and be happy. And like, but you also talk that. a lot about having uh, the like the aspiration of having a secure mm-hmm. life. You talk about being one day wanting to be married to somebody and like really have a friend that you were in love with and did life with and you know That's really true. could 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 be secure. Like I feel like so much of what you have become as a man, you hear yourself making that prayer when you were a kid. Now you're touching on something that I I love to bring up because it's such a strange thing for me. And I wonder how many other artists that write, I would say we, because I feel like we probably write the same way. It's a stream of consciousness in a sense that, you know, a lot of people say this, it comes from somewhere. It just comes out of my hand. And whether it be God, whether it be the universe, however you want to put it, you know, something's flowing through me and I just gratefully accept it. And when it hits, it hits, right? Mm -hmm. But there are multiple albums, especially later on in my career. I'm, I'm picking one out of the hat in particular, Therapy at Three, which came right after um, Grey Crow. Yeah. I had, I was sitting in the car re-listening to the album because I'm going to start writing out the lyrics again, memorizing. That's how I do. I used to do it. I would re-listen to the songs, write out the lyrics all again, and just repeat. And I started hearing things in the songs. I'm like, dude, I am talking about right now. It's 10 months later. The things I'm talking about on this track are happening to me right now. And it was freaking me out. I'm like, dude, how many times have I done this? And I start 
listening to other i'm like dude what i'm i'm literally telling myself what's coming i yes. swear it happens a lot yeah. with my music mm-hmm. and and that's where the that's where the um pulling it from somewhere else i mean if you're getting fed these things that not only <clears throat> are guidance for yourself because i always tell people a lot of the you know i really i personally don't like and this goes for tweets posts on instagram i don't like you need to do this. And if you don't do yeah. this, you need to do. I can't stand unsubscribe. it. It triggers me so much. I'm unsubscribe. unsubscribe. I always like to approach these things when I'm trying to share something with someone. I went through this and this is how I handled it or I fell short. I would like to try this next time instead of you, you, you. Don't. Right. Or when people say, don't go to the thing and do this. Don't you. I'm like, man, you're you're missing me with that. And um, And so... The way that I uh, I write is inter- is open for interpretation for everyone, but I'm talking myself most of the mm-hmm. time. That's right. I'm dealing with very uh, much internal turmoil or whatever the case may be, or love or passion. It's it's always directed. It's a selfish sort of thing. It's like journaling for the world. You know what I mean? But it ends up touching people who go through the similar, a lot of the similar struggles that I've gone through, go through, or many of us go through. So. Um, it's just strange how it comes back. If I go back and listen, I'm like, wow, I was calling it. I was calling it 11 months ago. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. I wonder if that ever happens for you. I mean, so much of what I do is like, especially so much of what I have done has been like reporting on a, on a phase of life that I am just leaving. So a lot of times like I process and when I write a song about something, usually it's about a phase that I've, that, like a chapter that's just ended and I'm yeah. reporting as like somebody that just got out of it. That's, that's usually what it's been. There've been a few times where I'm, I'm able to actually gather my thoughts in the moment and talk about what's happening now. But in terms of predicting the future, it's a lot less like that. Right. Well, that makes sense because of, because you go, you tend to go through some things, process it, and then you're like, "Wow, this is what I, this is what just went down from beginning to end." Whereas I'm in it, writing yeah. to survive, so to speak. Like, what? Da, 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 da. Or no, yeah, but no, th- that doesn't even make sense either. Because what I'm saying is that I write about things that feel like uh, they're coming or they're they're about to happen or sort of happening, but it really doesn't apply to my life till uh, 10 months down the line. It doesn't happen every single song, but it happens. And especially with, of course, it was called therapy at three. I mean, it all made sense. I was just dumping over these amp live beats and all this stuff started applying later. Um, and, and it also made me think of the idea that if I look at my life as a timeline, there are these moments that stick out these the, the big circle like boom i got clean mm-hmm. in 2005 that's a big one 2010 i get this nervous you could call it a nervous anxiety breakdown exploding in my life i quit smoking cigarettes at that point 2010 and this whole other arc journey starts happening from there and then um you know the birth of your your child and uh there's other moments that happened that all were very significant to me and um I don't know what led me to that thought, but I wonder if you have that as well. Like if you put out the timeline of your life, yeah. there are very significant moments. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, like I, I've, I don't put out as much music as and as most of our peers do. I think the only one right. that puts out less than me is Immortal Technique. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know what I mean? But like I put out surprisingly few, you know, releases. Like I, but it's true. each one of my albums usually is about one of those moments. Like when I realize that I've had one of those moments, then it's time to make a record about it. You know, or sometimes I'm in them as they're happening. Um, but when I think about mine, it's like, you know, each one of those moments is an album and then I'll go and tour that album and then start living through something. And then once I'm able to understand the structure of it or see the narrative in my own head, and it's a trip that we think about things in terms of narratives and how you're saying that, you know, things come up in your music because of how open you are and what a, what a stream of consciousness it is that, you know, one of the, my favorite poet, one of my best friends, Amir Suleiman, just put out this album with Robert Glasper. But we were, we were talking and he was saying that he's writing a, a, a film. He's writing this really dope movie and I can't I like reveal what it, what it is, but he's writing this movie where he says that there's a character that he loves. He's like, I'm the creator of this character and I love him. And I think he's the one of the most amazing people that have ever lived because I created him and I created him to be amazing. And so in order to show both him how amazing he is and also anybody that's watching or listening, watching this movie, I need to put him in really difficult situations because I can't show people how courageous he is unless I show people how terrified he is. So he's like, sometimes I'll, I'll write a situation where he's terrified and he does the right thing anyway to prove how courageous he is. But then I'll realize like, he's not scared enough. The audience doesn't understand how terrifying this is. So he's like, so I'll give him, so I'll go back in time in his story and I'll give you a flashback in his story. Like this is what happened to him when he was eight years old that's now being triggered in this moment that he's in now. So you understand, he's like, I need to scare him even more so that the audience can see just how beautiful his virtues really are when it matters most. You know what I'm saying? And he was saying that, like, you know, and Amir is a great, you know, Sufi, like, mystic, Muslim poet, teacher, educator, speaker. And he's like, man, it, it made me understand the twists and turns that the creator, that the Most High is gifting us in, in every moment more because of the fact that, like, the Most High, our creator, like, the author of our story is not, is not living it in linear time the way we are. The same way I'm not watching this movie, I'm writing this movie. But the but the person who's watching the movie and also this character, they have to live it in linear time. But as the but the creator is not, and the creator knows what the end is and what the meaning of all these things are. So it's like such a it really is like a testament to your own openness and and your receptivity, like how re, how receptive you are in those moments that you're creating, that you're able to get these glimpses. So that the meditations that you're having in your music are actually predicting your own future. Right. Well, it's incredible, man. It's crazy, man. I, I just, I like to, I've been saying this lately. I would love to not be metaphorically get my ass kicked every time it's time for one of those moments on the timeline. I, I'm tired of getting kicked off the mountain and falling on my face or, you know, dropping off a cliff when, when I could have had a much simpler, you know, 
a simpler path if I would have just paid attention to the whispers, if I would just hear what is being spoken to me and, and take the necessary steps along the way to make it a gradual you know, thing instead of getting kicked where it's like, okay, dude, you didn't listen. Now you're getting thrown off the mountain. Good luck. You'll make it, but it's going to hurt this time. I'm, I'm like, I'm done with that. Can I just be done with that kind of stuff? Because it's been too many of those. I'm, I'm good. Man. I just, so my whole theme of, of the past few years is listen to the whispers, bro. And I'm talking to myself, like, listen to the whispers. And if I can do that, then all those uh, big, huge, painful, growing moments won't be so drastic. And so shocking, you know what I mean? Because, because I am a person, a spirit, whatever, who wants to keep climbing. I, I see, I use this metaphor as well. Like, you know, a lot of our friends got to a certain place on the mountain. They're like, you know what? I'm good here. I'm just going to stop. I'm good. I don't need to go any further. And I'm like, are you sure? Because it's so hard to see a great person just start coasting. Coasting, or or and I don't want to say give up, but just it's so hard to see that man. Like, yeah, get comfortable. I would say, yeah, I'm man. comfortable with halfway, or I'm just good here. I don't want to do any more of that. What you're doing, my um, my feeling is always that I want to keep going, mm-hmm. whether it be spiritually, whether it be family oriented, but definitely art wise, I've never been satisfied because I always want more. But I've always been trying to, you know, celebrate the small. Um, the small things uh, that may seem small to me, but that I've always like said, yeah, I just did that, but I'm, I want that. So it's like, now I'm like, you know, that was great. What you just did, what you just said was really awesome. You're a good guy. Good work. Let's keep it going. I don't, you know, I don't know if I'll ever get to do a lot of things I want to do, but this yearning, the fact that I jumped into the NFT space the way I did is just a part of that anxiety in my stomach that pulls me. And it's like, you're coming, let's keep going. And it goes along with, uh, it reaches into my, uh, my, the life of me as a human being, my body, my health, the way I've taken care of myself, the way I eat, the way I'm exercising. I mean, to veer off on uh, another street here, this is just what I'm dealing with recently. You know, we had COVID hit, quarantine, uh, sedentary lifestyle, not doing really anything, babies born, two years of that. Now I'm like in the kitchen doing dishes. I turn and I pull a muscle in my calf. Was I playing football, running in the street? No, I was <laughs> right. doing dishes. Something happened to my calf. It popped. I was like, dude, that is not good. And next thing you know, I'm limping, limping around the house. And, you know, my body is screaming at me. That You know, I even hear it in my head like it's time. It's time to go, dude. Simple. You don't need to become an Ironman or go to the gym and push weight. Look, you're walking with your kid. That's good. But now we got to take it up another notch. Let's get into yoga again. Let's start stretching the body. Let's get into Qigong because I've been wanting to do it forever. And actually, that was one of the last conversations I had with my brother, Zumbi, is talking about Qigong, which he was heavily into. Mm. He was giving me some tips. And it's all about the breath, breathing, and breath is life. And just, you know, bringing the vitality back to my body because it's a tight knot. And it's, you know, there's some atrophy there. I, a lot of the stuff I do is sitting. Like I draw, I'm sitting for hours. I'm with right, the kid, right, right. you know, whatever, whatever it may be. I'm like, it's time now. And those are the whispers I was talking about. The whispers are happening. They're coming in the form of a little pull in my leg. But the <laughs> next thing you know, I ignore that and I'm having chest pain or, you know, I'm just jumping to things. But 
It's like, dude, listen, listen now and go. Like, let's go. Esther Phillips has a song. And a lot of times when I hear these, like, you know, I, my favorite music is soul music. So I'll hear like these black artists sing a song and have no idea. Like that's a Burke Backrack song or somebody you would never <laughs> imagine. So I don't know if somebody sang it first, but Esther Phillips has this joint called From a Whisper to a Scream. And that's the whole thing I've been thinking when you're talking about. Like, like I wish I would just whisper, listen to the whispers. Cause man, if you don't listen to the whisper, then it's gonna come back as a scream. Yes, dude, that's the whole, I need to hear that song, man. That is the whole, that's the whole pie right there, bro. You hear me talk every week about the connection that I have with Sakat Foundation on this podcast because of the fact that they've been supporting us from day one. And that's true. And I'm so honored and grateful and excited to be in the work with them and in this ch in the challenge and in the struggle with them. But really, this connection goes back even further with my sister Amna Mirza and I, because Amna comes from the world of corporate marketing and nonprofits. And that's really where she laid her foundation, started to spread her wings, really built her toolkit in thinking creatively about what the possibilities are for any project that she is involved in. And I come, of course, from the world of art and culture, from the music industry. I roll my eyes at this term, but the entertainment industry. And that's where I was able to build my experiences and also really think creatively. And so when Amna went to Zakat Foundation, which is an organization that I already had great respect for, but I know that the the type of creative thinking that she's going to bring to a project like that, it was just really exciting to me. And then when we mentioned to her that we're going to do this podcast, I think she was equally excited. And so this work and this connection has really been a good one. Zakat Foundation is a global uh, charity that's headed and run by Muslims, but they are really creative and innovative and nuanced with the way that they approach the work. So when I say that, I mean that it's a Muslim-led organization, but they don't only help Muslims, they don't proselytize. And they just have been really honest about uh, entering into an industry that um, where they saw some real opportunities for growth. And I think that's true because so many in the Muslim community come from um, places where NGOs and big kind of like corporate uh, humanitarian organizations have come in. And so, so many of us and our families have had direct experience, live experience with these organizations that have the best of intentions, but a lot of times there are challenges to delivering goods and services and resources in ways that are dignified and that help you know, that, that have maximum benefit to the communities. So one of the things that I love that they do is that they partner with people on the ground and in the communities that they're seeking to serve. And that's extremely important because if you come in, you know, with these kind of grandiose intentions and thoughts and ideas, but you don't connect with the people, a lot of times you miss the nuance and you miss the complexity of their lived experience and of the world that they're navigating. So having them be in the driver's seat is extremely important. Also, you know, if, if we just repeat the ways that, that nonprofits have operated in the past, a lot of times we miss the opportunity 
to think creatively and to grow the capacity. So one of the things that I love that they did with their uh, programming in general is just that they have new approaches that are courageous in the sense that they identify some of the downfalls and some of the needs for change and growth that already exist in these industries. So check them out on social media, Zakat US. You'll be able to follow the work that they do. Go to their website, zakatfoundation.org, and check out all of the ways that they help around the world and the amazing, incredible work that they do. And find a way to support their work and find a way to become part of their amazing efforts all over the world. It's an organization that I know, that I trust, that actually excites me with their creativity and with their willingness to look at things as they are and then imagine them as they could be. Really grateful to be rocking with Sakat Foundation. The Travelers Podcast is sponsored this week by BetterHelp Online Therapy Platform. And when you use our link to sign up with them, you get a discount and we receive a commission that supports the work that we do here at the Travelers Podcast. So it's a win for everybody. So many of the conversations that we have here weave together these themes of art and culture and spirituality and practice and community, and then also advocacy and organizing and truth-telling, you know, working in community. And all of these things share uh, the common thread and the common intention of just opening up space and channels and opportunities and permission for us to examine ourselves as a world, as communities, as societies, but also individually, to look at ourselves and to understand ourselves better so that we can heal and become whole and actually unlock potential to become the people we want to be to build the families that we want to be, to, to build the world that we want to live in and have the communities and the type of relationships that foster that growth and that healing and that change so that we can heal and be better. And so one of the opportunities to do that is therapy. And we're major proponents of therapy on this podcast. So many of the amazing people that we've had as guests have been therapists and have been specialists. And even though I know those people, I have major challenges, roadblocks, barriers to just being able to have them treat me as a client. And so many people have those barriers. I don't live in America, so I don't, I'm not covered by their licenses. And also I'm an independent entrepreneur self-employed person. So I don't have the type of insurance where I could be able to access that. So I have challenges of my own. I learned about BetterHelp on a podcast. And BetterHelp is a network of licensed, qualified therapists who come from different walks of life, different backgrounds, and also bring together different types of approaches and expertise in the field of, of mental health and of therapy and of healing. So you go to betterhelp.com, B-E-T-T-E-R, help, H-E-L-P.com slash travelers. That'll let you know that we sent you and that you learned about them from this podcast. And it'll mean that you'll get that 10% discount and we'll also get a commission. But what will happen and what happened with me is that you're taken to a questionnaire that just helps to gain some clarity for what is it that's bringing me to the table. What is it that's making me know I'm ready to start my journey with therapy or continue the journey? One of the things they ask you is, have you been in therapy before? Because a lot of times, you know, we do therapy for a while and then we stop or, the, you know, we have some sort of interruption or we're just looking to, to change the platform that we use. And so what is it that's bringing you to therapy? Do you want to talk about 
relationship with substances and dependency and abuse? Do we want to talk about our personal, interpersonal relationships with our family or with, you know, romantic partners or, you know, all of the above? Do we want to talk about our thoughts of suicidality? Have we been thinking about suicide? Whatever it is that's bringing us to the table, this questionnaire will actually help bring these things to the to the table and bring them out and make them known. Then the questions shift to what type of therapist do I want to talk to? Do I want somebody from my background and my community? Do I want somebody that has a specific type of training? And then we're connected with therapists. They give us options. These are the different therapists that we think might be good matches for you. And then you're able to choose the therapist that you want to start talking to. And you start communicating with them immediately. And then you go into their calendar and you find times that work well for you. You tell them, do I want to turn my camera on and have a face-to-face meeting? Do I just want to talk over the phone? And it's all completely confidential using the BetterHelp app. Um, their own, you know, portal for communication that's completely secure and and uh, confidential. Or do I just want to start by texting with this person? And for me, you know, from the beginning, I was assigned a therapist and I said, well, I'll just give it a shot because you can also change your therapist whenever you want to. No questions asked, no funny feelings, nothing like that. There's just a, a button there on the side of the app where at any time, if it doesn't feel like a good connection, if it doesn't feel like this is the person that's going to help me explore myself and unlock my potential that I want to do this work with, it just doesn't feel like a connection, you just change, you just switch. And then they show you a new pool of people that you could choose from. So. I couldn't recommend this more highly. You know, I I started using BetterHelp. I was assigned a therapist that is not from my background. And I was like, you know what? Let me just give it a shot. From the first conversation, she was asking me questions. And she was really listening to me and really reflecting the things that I was saying to her in ways that that were helping me see my own thinking and my own narratives about myself in ways that I never did before. And that's when I started thinking, you know what? I wonder if BetterHelp would partner with us on the Travelers Podcast so that we could offer this service that I found out about through one of my favorite podcasts. So we're really grateful to be rocking with them. Go to BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash travelers. Like I said, you'll get a discount. You'll be able to start communicating with the therapist immediately and continue this journey of mental health and healing. You mentioned that your mom put you out at one point, and everybody that knows you personally knows Mama Joe, and even the people that just know your music, like anybody that knows your music or has seen you or, or you know, followed you at any point, like knows how much your mom is part of your life and what has an, we have at least an idea and a sense of what you guys mean to each other. I wonder though, especially when we're talking about journey, you know, like the, the way that the creator sees us, you know, our parents don't see us the exact same way. Like they're seeing it in a linear, they're experiencing as it happens too. But I wonder now, especially as somebody that's had children later in life, how do you, what do you imagine your mom was thinking when she had you like it's almost impossible to shake the feeling of like we have children my first child was a son and i'm like man mm-hmm. i i hear it when i hear my songs for him that i'm like this is the kind of man i'm gonna mold you into and so what right. i hear is like no you know you're not you're just 
you're just a custodian for whatever the creator made this person to be. And you're either going to be good at it or bad at it, but you don't make this person anybody. This guy is who he is. And I wonder, what has, what, what do you think your mom was thinking when she had you throughout all of these different moments in life and what they've meant to you? And for her to have been such a such a pivotal role and tried to respond in different ways. And where do you think she's at now with seeing you and where you are? Oh, man. I was so attached to my mom. Like I would, when I left town to go visit grandparents in Florida for the first time without parents, it was me and my sister who was younger than me, three years younger. She was chilling. She was good. I was homesick. Like I needed my mom. I was so mm. mama's boy out. I was like, could not enjoy the trip. I remember being, and I must have been nine, something like that. My sister was six, and I was the one sitting under the kitchen table at my grandparents' house, writing letters to my mom. I miss you. I want to come home. And uh, I was so attached to her. Uh, and so we had this crazy bond because she, um, she definitely. Uh, shared you know when she would perform when i was younger she would sing it um she was very politically active so she'd be singing at demonstrations and and i would have memories of the smell of her knee-high leather boots because mm. i would be wrapped around her leg and i remember the smell of her boots right so i was attached to my mom i watched her perform i was in awe of her voice she was my everything you know what i mean and she also had you know those moments when especially when she was more of a single mom and my dad, they had divorced. He wasn't there. She was doing the working, coming home, handling everything. She would, she had, man, she had anger issues. She would burst out. She would have like rage. Like we'd be late for school to the bus stop. She'd get in the fucking car and just get in the car, just turn around the corner. Like me and my sister in the back holding on for dear life. She skirts up to the, to the uh, bus stop and says, get out. And we're all embarrassed. Like, oh my God. But, you know, my mom has done a lot of work since then. She's a different person. She doesn't have that same anger built up inside her. But that was, you know, that was her stuff. And what I've, and as I know her now, later in life, she started to rely on me as somebody that she would come to when she was in spiritual crisis or having Mm. issues. And she became, you know, it was more of like a sister energy than a mom energy for a while until... I started to think that that wasn't all the way healthy either. And I'm like, I, I don't, I want to be here for my mom. Like I'm perfectly good being her for her, giving her advice, et cetera, et cetera, helping her in any way I can. Since she did that for me when I was little and, and for many years, but it was like a dependence that I was like, this is, I had to like cut it and like separate the, 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 the cord, so to speak. It was still there when I was little, so attached to her. That was probably around 2010, 11 as well. Mm. Then, you know, and we made music together. We made an album together. I brought her on tour for the first time, only time. And she'll never forget that. She always brings it up. And she brings up people that still reach out to her about that music. And it means the world that I was able to do that with her. And that she, you know, she has people that recognize her in that way. But in some ways... Is like, you know, the kind of the roles reverse and the parents become the children that it, it's a metaphor, but it's also what really happens in a lot of ways, yeah. even when the parents are doing a lot of work and not to say she relies on me like that anymore. But it's, you know, the older she gets, 
it's you know it's coming where i'm gonna be like mom you're coming with me like this is the next you know you can't live by yourself anymore you got to come with me and my wife has been really on me about thinking about that stage mm-hmm. but it's definitely it's definitely shifted from being like a koala attached to her to like separating and then her coming to me um but that whole cycle is definitely showing itself for sure. I bung, I butt heads with my parents so much and like throughout my life, like it was really challenging and, you know, they both died pretty young. And when I look back on it, what I realized, especially like being a convert to Islam, I grew up around a lot of people whose parents were from Egypt or Somalia or Pakistan. And so their parents come from a, a, a distinct culture And they're like, oh, I'm going to move to America, but I'm still going to raise Pakistani or Somali kids. Like, we're still going to be Somali. And to a certain degree, those kids might be Somali, but they're not really. Like, they're being raised in a different culture, in a different climate. This is not the same world. And so it causes tension. And I always felt like probably a lot of the tension between me and my parents was related to just me being, them being from Madison, Wisconsin, which is like the whitest leave it to beaver place ever. I mean, you've played there. Like, it's like, you know, and and no no diss to people that every place has a hood. I know there's people that struggle there, not dissing it. But if you live there, like, you got to know that's one of the places like that. But, and then, you know, I, I was raised with, with all black friends in inner city environments while the crack epidemic was going on and gangs and my friends are getting shot and going to prison and I'm getting arrested and all of this stuff. And so I wonder what that was like for you, knowing that your mom was part of a very progressive, conscious, anti-racist movement. She's a cultural person. She's an artist person. Was it different because of that? Like, did she have an oh, understanding yeah. for what hip hop was? And like, because I remember she told me that Merce moved in with you guys in high school. Yeah. <laughs> she was like, she was telling me yeah. stories like, she was like, Nicholas used to walk around our neighborhood with a with a golf club to to beat yes. people up with. <laughs> but I'm like, oh, so she was on that when you were in high school. Oh yeah, she she was very supportive of my interest in music and art for the entire time, dude. From the time that she took me to a place was called Rockaway Records, it was down the street in Echo Park. She would take me to the spot and she said, pick out a tape. What do you want to get? And I remember the first album I bought, I mentioned it many a times because it's forever stamped in my memory, was LL Cool J on Bad. And that album, that album changed me from the very, as soon as I heard that, it was off to the races. I'm like, I don't want to hear anything else. Mm -hmm. This is the most amazing shit. So my mom would take me to the record store. I don't remember how often it was, but at least maybe once a month. And I get to pick out an album. And I remember my friend said, you need to get that Easy e I'm like, Easy e I was like, oh, I'm on it. And I picked out Easy e Easy does it. And my mom said, put it in. And we got in the car. I'm like, um, she's like, put it in. I was like, okay, I put it in. What the and f- the, is up the, in the place to be? Yeah, and my mom said, I thought she was going to make me return. And she said, she ejected it. She said, listen to this in your room. I don't, you know, I don't want to hear this. And it's like, okay. But from then she didn't, she didn't like, if you hear my kid crying in the background like that. Um, she never, uh, she, she let me buy whatever I want music wise. And I even, she, the only one thing that happened that's funny um, back in the day was I lent my friend the Easy e tape. And two days later or a day later, 
that mother of that kid came up to the front door with the tape and yelled at my, chewed my mom out. You let me listen. You let your son listen to this shit, but you don't give this to my kid. That, 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 that. And she said, she closed the door and she said, don't lend your tapes to your friends anymore. I said, okay, sorry. So she Amazing. was completely, she was all about freedom of speech. She was, you know, she started, she didn't like the lyrics that Easy e was saying. She didn't like NWA on that. But once I started listening to Dell, Freestyle Fellowship, and Far Side, and some of those other, she was like, that sounds cool. And I'm like, yeah, this is the shit, right? Tribe Called Quest, even. She, you know, the things that weren't, you know, ob- obviously that harsh. Although Ice Cube and Easy e and NWA, some of my all time favorites, will always be for what it was groundbreaking stuff. But my mom was very supportive. Dude. Mm. So, and, and in this, and, you know, as far as like neighborhoods and being, for me, growing up in Echo Park, which was in the 80s, which yeah. was not what it is now. Yeah. It was La Vida Loca. I mean, that's what it was. La Vida Loca. Man. It, was, it was Mexican, Filipino, and mostly Mexican, Filipino neighborhood with white fence and, and all these crazy gangs around there. And then you had the white kids like me sprinkled in. And then I got bust from first to ninth grade. I went to 32nd Street USC Magnet School, which is right off USC campus, across from the Shrine Auditorium, the middle of South Central. Why did my mom send me there? She sent me there because it was a performing arts school. It was the closest one to me. She knew I loved, from the beginning, she wanted to send me to a performing arts school. That tells you how much she supported that part of me. And, um, and that school shaped me. It made me who I am. You know, the white kids were the minority at that school. It was the biggest blessing of all. I got to see the opposite side of the fence, man. And it was hard. It was, and in the beginning, it was scary. I was also, not only was I the white kid, but I was the shortest, littlest kid in the class. So I was the little scrawny white guy. And there was a couple other white kids sprinkled in, but that was the story of my life from first grade even up to first performing outside of the school, which was at the Good Life Cafe, was the first place I rapped outside Crazy. of the cafeteria. Crazy. And when you walked into the Good Life, there's a white guy. There's a white guy with dreads right there, but everybody else, it was it was no other white people there, and it was just a different time. Not to say it's it's any better or any worse, but it is what it was. I just mm-hmm. felt like this is leads back to what you were saying about as they passed. I was in boot camp really yes. quick because being white, I was like, I have to be better than everybody right. to be accepted, respected, or for anyone to think I'm dope. I need to be super dope. So, And you have to prove it immediately. The first word out of the it mouth it. has right. to make it very clear. I'm here for a reason. <clears throat> yeah. You, you are here and you're bringing something to the table and you're not just sort of okay. And we got up on that. So we signed up. We signed your name on the list. They called us. It was Scarab, me, and our boy Trinell. We got up there. And I was the last verse. Spit my verse. And it was just... Just like high voice. That, and people were just like, what? And if they didn't... If people didn't like you at The Good Life, it was a slow hum that turned into a loud, please pass the mic. Please pass. And then they would shut the music off, kick you off stage. It was like, you got the hook. Boom. And... It didn't happen to us. People were like, what? And I was like, man, it felt like I had entered the room right then, right then and there. And it's an experience people don't get to have anymore. Yeah. Honestly. What year was that? That was... Because graduation would have been around 94. 
it was not, it had to be, it was 92. Okay. 92. Amazing. I think it was ni- 92 is when I walked into the good life. I was, a, you know, no facial hair, little kid, you know, and um, from there on, that's when I never lost the butterflies stepping on stage. Even now, yeah, I still have them. The last time I saw you, still have them. Going on in front of 12 people, still have them. You know, Crazy. it doesn't matter. Crazy. It's, it's always been there. And the, the desire to do my best has always been there. And I think you and I share that as well. Yeah. And I think we both had uh, voice challenges along the road and mm. in, in learning how to take care of my voice and why my voice was tripping out on me and learning that in-ears became the way to go for me because monitors were murdering my ears and my ears are, you know, have tinnitus now. And one of my ears doesn't work as good as the other one. High frequencies are gone in my right ear. Um, and learning it, it really, it wasn't really about the voice. It was more about the disease of perfectionism that I clung to for so long that if I, this is a sense of control you were talking about as well. Right, trying right, right. to control the outcome on stage by over-rehearsing, yes. Yes. over-practicing. And by the time I get there, um, you know, just being able to make sure that I don't mess up. Because if I mess up, oh my God, uh, it's it's just the worst. But mm-hmm. for me, it's losing control on stage. If I forget a vocal, a lyric all of a sudden, I feel uh, panicky, uh, like I lost my way, like people are going to think less of me or whatever, when in reality, none of that matters. No one even really, they hear the vocals and a lot right. of the songs, people want to hear the verses, but it's the, it's the energetic exchange that people are there for. They're there to be with you, just, just getting that energy going. So it took me a long time. The last couple of years, I went from, oh, I got a show December 10th. I'm starting November 10th. I'm going to start rehearsing. It's like, dude, a month, three weeks ahead. Like now I, I get like, two days in right before, maybe three, maybe a week if it's new songs that I'm doing. But I had to really check myself like, bro, you don't need to do, it started harming my voice is what I was saying. So yeah. I was doing physical harm, trying to maintain that control main, and, and, and attach myself to this being perfect thing that does not exist. Well, mine is still an ego thing, but it's, but it's the ego showing up in a different form. And it definitely is related to control. But it, it's for me, it's like, I rehearse to a certain degree, um, you know, and I, I do take it seriously and we put a lot of work into the show. But when I'm on the stage, I'm trying to push my voice so that I absolutely dominate the situation. Like I grew up listening to that live album that uh, Boogie Down Productions, KRS-One, Live Hardcore Worldwide. And to me, that's the holy grail. And like, there's mistakes in that album, but his voice and his presence is so commanding. And like, you can hear his voice echoing off the walls in the club. And so that's what I'm trying to make happen. When I get in there, it's like, man, I want to hear my voice echo off the walls. I want to be the loudest person on stage. I want everyone to hear every single thing I'm saying. And there's times where it's just, that's not what's going to happen today. And so pushing, you know, even if it's working out, you know what I mean? Just to keep on doing that every single day, like you're pushing your voice to a place where it's not supposed to be for a sustained period of time. Right. I've been hyper-focused on my voice a lot in my life because it's, I think it just goes deeper than the actual voice and the need to be heard is the obvious thing. I mean, you know, and making sure for me, it's the cutting. It's making sure my voice cuts 
through right. all the bass and the noise. I want to cut right into your heart. I just want to cut you. And yeah. not in a bad way, but just like, I want you to hear me. I mean, I want to be heard well. I want to be a technician on stage. I want to be able to do things where you hear what I'm doing. You're like, wow. But now the, the in-ears have just saved me a ton as far as my voice goes. Because I'm not overextending because I hear what I'm doing in my ear. But letting go of being being perfect as well is, is just the, the biggest one. It's amazing because so so many of us struggle with our voice. And it's something that people don't really talk about. Like I had never had a rapper really, another MC, really talk to me about my voice. It actually was Stokely from Mint Condition. I spoke to him about it. And he was like, man, you know, the polyps and the nodules and all that stuff. Have you been to the uh, yeah. ear, nose and throat doctor and they show you your, they put the camera in your throat and you see no, like the No, I haven't done that, bro. Man, I, I'm scared to do that. <laughs> I recommend it. I recommend it. And I've actually taken multiple people. There's an ear, nose, and throat clinic in, in uh, Minnesota that's seen a bunch of like world-class rappers because I'm like, yo, when yeah. you go there, I'll tell you the exact doctor to go to. And Stokely was the one that actually told me like, yo, there's a surgery you know, that where they'll actually take a laser now. They used to do it with a knife and they'll remove the polyps and nodules. And I'm afraid to do it. I probably should. Uh, but it basically returns your voice back to what it was before that happened. Whoa. And he started telling me all the people that have had this surgery. He was like, yo, Stevie Wonder had it more than once. And I'm just like, dang, it's not just, you know, it's not just people that are struggling or trying to make our voice into something it's not, you know, just using the voice at that level is so big. And man, what I figured out is like, so, you know, recently, like I'm still, I'm still, I'm trending down in a major way in terms of weight. Like I've lost, like since the beginning of me starting, I've lost like 35, 40 pounds. And I, I noticed that like me being on stage and just not carrying that extra weight, I can breathe better. But also oh. like the the tension of me being on stage and feeling fat and like holding my belly in so I'm not breathing properly. You know what I mean? And I'm trying to like, I'm trying to overcompensate for being on stage and being like, I don't like this body. I wish I had a different, you know what I mean? That's a big deal, dude. That's yeah. a big deal thinking about the self-consciousness of of how we appear on stage. <clears throat> even, even while being up there and the way I'm moving my arm, I'm like, you're doing that weird. What are you doing? I feel like Talladega <laughs> Nights where you're like, I don't know what to do with my hands. Um, right, 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 right. And just letting go of that, that has been, and even being on stage and, being concerned about the next song because it's new or I'm like, I haven't done this. I'm like, I just ask, I ask God to channel. I'm just like, open the channel, send yeah. me the words. That's I'm right. just going to be present. And that's being right. present is the, is the, I guess that's the everyday, I don't want to call it a battle, but that's the everyday situation. I'm trying, I'm trying to get myself to be present, not thinking about what's coming, not thinking about that. Just yeah. be right here. That is, the hardest thing for me to do. And um, and yet that is where life exists. It doesn't exist anywhere, but right here with you and me, if we're, you know, and being on stage should be the ultimate experience of being present because even though we're reciting and we're performing, there's people right in front of us that we are connecting with at the same time. And that's why it's so unique. And like a lot of people don't get to feel the things we feel up there. If you care enough about the experience of connection, which I think, you're right. We both share that. And I do crave that and enjoy that while it's happening. It's just 
being in bands, being on planes, this, that. I, that's the part I'm like, ah, I'm just over that. Um, but you know what's weird, dude, is I don't know if you've ever done performed on IG Live or or done anything online where people are watching you. I feel the same nervousness. Mm. I feel the same feeling. Being in a room by myself, performing into the camera, I see, you know, people will be sending little, you know, emojis or like, oh, I love the song or whatever. I still feel like I'm performing, dude. It's crazy. If you want to take a rehearsal to the next level, do it live uh, for people. Man, I did a, when I moved to Istanbul, I did a New Year's Day, like, show. Um, and the thing with that one was that I missed the people so much, but the, the, like, I have a good friend who lives in my neighborhood who is like a world-class documentary filmmaker. And he's somebody that I'm really close with. And so he filmed it and it, and it was him and his son and nobody else there. It was just the three of us on the balcony of this. And then, uh, Yasin Bey was like, man, I wish I could, I wish I could introduce you. He was like, I'm going to come to Istanbul and I'm going to introduce you. <laughs> I'm like, oh, wow. all right. And I mean, Yasin Bey will just show up somewhere like that. But he actually he ended up sending in a video of him saying, what I'm pleased to present to you in this moment, the uncomparable. It's so <laughs> dope. But so it's just me and my my friend and his eldest son, who's like, you know, he's a, his apprentice. And I, what I noticed is like, we started to do it. And I was like, this doesn't feel right. I was like, I'm going to start over. And I was like, I know people are watching this. This isn't right. And so I started over. And I started performing for the two of them. Like they're holding cameras and I'm like trying to, I'm trying to connect with them as I do a song. And then once I started doing that, then it became beautiful. And then at the end, my man that was, um, at the end I got emotional. And so he turned the camera back on and he was like, what are you feeling right now? And he's like, tell, your, tell the people watching like how you feel. And I'm sitting there like crying, like I just miss it so much, like I miss, that feeling of performing, connecting. I miss that. Um, and it's weird because like we're giving the audience a gift. They're, they're receiving a gift, but it's also they're giving us one as well. And it's such a mutual, you know, thing. That's why, that's why I always say exchange. I mean, it's the mm -hmm. exchange. It's the, yeah. it's a, I see it as a circle. We send it out. And we asked for it to come back. I'm like, please give it back to me because you gas me up. You feed me with your energy. If you're standing there staring at me or talking to your friend or on your phone, I get nothing back from you. And I have right. to rely on God, which I'm, I'll do that. I, the song that I just put out. And, you know, Ali, to get back to, not get back to, but to speak on religion. Like, I've never been religious. My mom didn't relate, raise me in any religion. But I've always, since I was a kid, going on that first bus ride to 32nd street i prayed on mm -hmm. the bus no one taught me that mm -hmm. i recall this i'm like you were a little first first grader yeah. praying on the bus yeah. because you knew something was hearing you and i've yes. always known something yes. bigger than me hears me protects me mm -hmm. and is there for me and so that i've clung on to my whole life i've had no problem with the word god i have no problem with any way people uh, want to view god i just I think it's the most interesting stuff ever. But um, so I wrote this song. It, it was called Westbound. It was on this new album with, with DJ Fresh that we just dropped. 
it's yeah. a talking shit song, dude. I'm just like, I'm just going. I'm styling. I'm talking. But in the chorus, I or at the end of the first verse, I literally, I'm not gonna say the 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 actual um what I wrote, but it, the the tone was, if you don't give me the energy at the show, I'm good. I got God. On me. I that's say right. that like, give me the energy or don't. I got God given to me, and that's where you just go off in your own zone. So it is a gift of. Uh, and then it's the like gift a gift to all of us that w- that none of us knew about. And that's what I'm saying. Like I've never known, I, I've never met a, cr- a creative person that I will accept from them a- and that they are truly atheists. And I've had this conversation oh, with yeah. Sage Francis. Like there was a period where he was Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, like anti-theist, religion is stupid, blah, blah, blah. And, I, and I'm just like, okay, when you're creating your most the 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 songs that really touch you and touch people, like you're saying that you did all of that, or is there a moment <laughs> where you just showed up and you honored the process? You knocked at the door so much, because that's what Rumi says about praying and dhikr and all this, like r- reciting and and having a uh, you know mantras and these things. Like we're knocking on the door, and you have to knock on the door, and you never know when the creator is going to open the door, and invite you in and give you something or or, or hands, you know, pass something out to you. And so it's like, yeah, we sit down every day or whatever, whatever our practice is. And then, and we knock on the door and sometimes we make a shit talking song. Sometimes we make a song that nobody's ever going to hear. Sometimes there's like, this is all pretty whatever, but there's these four bars will probably be reused in something else. But we all know there's those moments where it's just like something is just moving through us and we're being given something. So that's one level. And then I realized it's really a language thing. For most people, it's a language thing. Like they've been hurt. So many of people have been hurt with the name God. And they have a conception of God that I also don't have, that God is a man that judges people and God is, you know. But there's another level with, a, with, that, with an artist like you, and I know you have this. Because I've seen it, and I just know it from hearing your music, but also I've been on tour with you and I've seen it. Like, there are people who, like, the thing that you wrote, they tell you that it saved their life. And they're not exaggerating. Like, there are people who, you know, your journey with, you know, uh, substances and sobriety or just something that you said in their song gave them what they needed to move forward. They were about to kill themselves that night. They were about to do this thing. They, you know, it's the, what they needed to go get therapy or get clean or whatever it is. And we don't even know that person exists. You know what I'm saying? So we talk about like the creator giving us all these stories, like everything that happened to happen in our lives to write that song, all the stories, all of the inspiration that we're channeling, all of the things that have happened in us, all the, you know, for us to be able to create that song and then that song to go out in the world with no big record label, with no distribution. We never, it was never on a billboard. And somehow it found a person who also has had all of these things happen in their life that have aligned so perfectly with the way that it came out, the particular beat and the sample and the way the drums are programmed, the way it was mixed. It found them at the right moment. Their homie left a CD in the car and they got it and it touched them. And now there they are at a show this person that you never knew existed. You know what I'm saying? And they're feeding your ability to do that thing is really a powerful thing. And so when people thank you 
I'm wondering how do you feel in those moments? Because I've seen you in those moments where someone is standing there in tears and like their best friend or their boyfriend is standing there behind them like, dude, it's true. And she's just like, you saved my life. And he's like, it's true, bro. No, it's true. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Like, how do you, what are the things that you, how do you receive that when it happens? Uh, I have to receive it with complete open arms. I never get tired of it. Uh, I had someone recently, it was him and his girlfriend and the guy was like saying these things you're saying. And he started, he's like, I'm going to cry, man. And I'm like, hey, man, it's all good. I'm, I'm giving him a hug. I'm tapping him on the back. I'm looking him right in the face. You know, when I was 18, I couldn't do that. I'd probably be looking down. I'd be looking this way. But now I've, it's the biggest gratitude I could feel is somebody saying these things to me and, you know, giving them love back and, you know, letting me know that I'm, there's a bigger reason why I do the things I do and why I decide to speak on the topics I speak on. And like you said, I have no qualms no doubts that it is absolutely not just me. I might be carrying it out and like performing it in my unique way as a human being, but these things come to me and I just, uh, like you said, I'm just, I'm just the instrument and, um, and it feels great. I mean, there's no better feeling than that, especially when somebody says they, they heard Grey Crow and they heard this song and that's when they decided to go to a meeting and now they hand me a chip five years clean. I'm like, dude, this is amazing. How could you get tired of that? That's just the best thing ever. I love it. I'm not uncomfortable at all by it either. Yeah. You are someone that clearly values these creative relationships. You know what I mean? Like, I know that there's these people that have meant a lot to you. Like, it's very, everybody is well aware. Anybody that knows you or Grouch knows that there really is like a very deep bond that you guys have with the music. And, you know, there's people that, you know, I know that you could probably say a lot about people like Pigeon John and other others, but there's something about being a, a creative person also that not only taps us into spirituality and is definitely connected. Spirituality is definitely connected to the reality that our, our time on this plane is going to end. And it's not morbid. Like for a person that's really spiritually, well, you talk about being present, like the fact that I'm going to die actually makes me more present and it makes these moments more meaningful and it makes all the things that happen, like it, it gives life to my moments and to my breaths. It gives meaning to the things that happen because of the fact that I'm going to pass on and that I won't be here forever, but that this music actually will stay behind. And I think that artists are particularly tuned into this idea that music lives forever. And then sometimes we lose our people, you know, um, like losing idea. Idea was really tapped into that. And then, you know, he was one of the main people talking about death. And then he went on, you know, he passed on. So I don't want to frame it too much more than that, but just... Man, everybody lost Zumbi, but I know that he was somebody that really means a lot to you. And so I just kind of want to just ask you, what are you able to share about him or the experience of loving him or? Oh, man. He was, I love that guy so much. And, it, you know, I, you know, even with Grouch, my, my longtime brother, who I met Zumbi through obviously mm -hmm. grouch was working with steve and amp when we still lived in oakland so 1998 99 he was making that that a timeless song with them um 
as a guest appearance on that song. And I remember thinking, they gave you a beat that's like chop. It's like, this is chopping speed. They should have hit me up, man. I remember being like, man, why am I not on that song? Mm. But um, even so, I didn't really get to know these guys. That was 98, 99. I didn't get to know them till 2008, something like that, where we went on a Christmas tour together, well, on Groucho's Christmas tours. And it was Zumbi, Evidence. It was such a good, that was such a great tour. And I really got to know Zumbi on that tour. I And afterwards, Amp Lab and I made um, Therapy of Three, and then Amp became a, just a brother of mine. But Zumbi, I always loved him so much. Such a balanced, good dude. Such a, a great example as far as a father. And his boys were just just little lights, and our, our little lights. And the way he fathered them was inspiring. And I just loved him in so many ways. He was quirky. He did shit that annoyed me, and everybody does shit that annoys each other. Grouch gets, there's no one that gets under my skin more than him, like Merce <laughs> and Grouch. No one could get me upset quicker than those two guys, and that's because I love him so much, and we trigger each other in that way because we've been friends for so long. Zumbi and I had a different relationship. We talked about extremely personal, deep stuff every time we got on the phone. It was two hours. It was one of those things. Every time I got on the phone with him, it was two hours, dude. Because he was just, it's just, you know, that that feeling of like uh, recognizing in another soul that that's my, that's my people right there. And you just, right. you just love them um, in that way. So I, I definitely, after he passed, it was a very big shock. Like hearing that news was like, what? And then the way he passed was just so, it was hard to let go of that. And I had a dream about him maybe a couple of days after he passed and it was a party. He was there. There were other people that passed. There's people that are alive. He's talking to people and I'm like, I'm gonna leave him alone. He's talking to some other folks. I'm like hanging out at this party. Then he comes and he actually takes my hand and we walk downstairs into this room, this other room. And I just give him a hug. And it was like crying in the dream and really feeling that emotion in the dream. I haven't had a dream like that. It was, more like, you know, I'm gone, I'm good, goodbye type of vibe, even though the way he was taken was, it, you don't want to let go of that until justice is served. But I, you know, Grouch and I discussed the idea of justice and how is there really ever justice when someone's taken? You know, when the life is taken in that way, is there really ever justice? What, the guy put the guys in jail? Okay, doesn't bring Steve back. Zombie's not here. Mm-hmm. I miss him terribly, dude. I think about him. I see his boys, and it makes me just sick that he's not there for them. Um, I think he somewhat, he kind of knew that he was he was going to go. When you talk to um, some of his family and the things he was saying in the last few days before he left, he mentioned he was going to see the ancestors. He said that at one point. Mm. And um, he kind of knew, too. I think he was, the way he went was awful. There's, it just, there's no way other way to put it. And that part is hard to let go of. But, you know, I have, he was one of the first people that I, I cried for when they passed. I was, it was such a shock and such, and it was for his children too. But anyone else that I've known in my life that's passed away, I kind of get this feeling of joy, dude. I'd never had this feeling of, of, of despair and sadness because maybe it hasn't hit me so, 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 so close. But this one was, and it was the way he went, et cetera. But most of the time, I feel like, you graduated, man. You're out of here. Right. You yeah, know? you're done. You know, we're dying. So you're done with death. <laughs> yeah. You're done with this. We're with dying. You're done. Yeah. 
near death, right? So uh, in that sense, I don't know, man. I just love the guy so much. I miss our our conversations. I miss the way we vibed in the studio. It was it was super smooth with him. And when I first started performing as ZG&E with Grouch, Zumbi, me, Amp Live, DJ Fresh, it was the funnest. It was one of the most fun um, combinations of people on stage I've ever been with. His joy on stage was something to behold. The smile was genuine. It was a childlike smile. When I was on the stage with him, I couldn't help but beam back at him and be super connected to that dude on stage. We had so much fun together. There's a picture I posted uh, when he passed that's him and I slapping hands on stage. His face, dude, he was just such a good, good spirit. And he was all about the energy exchange, all about connecting the same we were. He was in that same spirit. And, and he was just one of those spirits that immediately I knew, this is my brother. I might not talk to him every single day or have known him the entire time, but he was my brother for sure. Special thanks to my dear brother Eli for being so generous with his time and his insight and his story and his journey. And just with himself, I'm, I'm sure you could maybe tell that we had to end in kind of an abrupt way. Eli is really in the mix with Daddy Duty and is so dope, you know, to have known him for so long and for him to have found this love, not only with his partner, but also with this growing family and with his baby. It's just really dope to see your friends that you know would be great parents to see them become parents. And so much love to him. We definitely want to have Eli back on the program. And much love to you for being grateful or generous with your time and with your attention and just being part of this, this uh, caravan. Make sure to like and share and subscribe and comment and rate and all that stuff. I always heard people say that at the end of podcasts and would be like, man, okay. It kind of went in one ear and out the other. But now that I have a podcast, it really does help the show to grow and to reach other people that would, that would want to join this thing. And speaking of which, go to brotherali.com. You'll be prompted to join the mailing list. Please do that. I write those messages myself. I don't send them out all the time. I don't send them out daily or weekly or even monthly. It's whenever I have things that I think you might want to know about, I personally write those emails and I send them out to the people in that mailing list. And then if you go to the section of the website called join, you'll see on the website that all of our events and our merch and our uh, catalog and, you know, if you want to... Uh, reach out to me and to us and request a verse or a beat, or you want to book me for an event or a speaking engagement or anything like that, you can do all of that on the podcast on brotherali.com. But then also, if you want to really engage in this process in a more meaningful way, go to the section called join where we've got a caravan of supporters, of listeners who are able to support us, but then also really engage in much more meaningful and personal ways. We've got all kinds of ways to get down in there, and we certainly appreciate the fact that so many of you do it and encourage those of you that, that really enjoy this podcast to check that out because it really is meaningful, it's really dope, and uh, it's a really just another level of connection that we're grateful to have. Special thanks to Amna Mirza, Mansour Panawala, to Last Word. Special thanks to Darian Washington and to Mark from Medina Hip Hop and to Ant for making the beat that is the theme song for this podcast. Uh, special thanks to our sponsors, Zakat Foundation and to BetterHelp. Go to betterhelp.com slash travelers and get down with this mental 
health journey and wellness practice. You know what I'm saying, son? You know what I'm saying, Namin? Namin, I'm saying? We're, we're very grateful to you. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Oh, and the Traveler's Podcast is edited and produced by Brendan Kelly, BK1. Peace and love.